Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is part 25 of a series called Whole, Both Body and Soul, Why I'm Catholic. And this one's titled The Problem with Reason Alone. Reason Alone. In college, I wasn't aware for some time that various dogmas of the academic world were steering me. Wanting mostly to party and just pass my classes, I was successfully steered into the secular dogma, which is the word I think it needs to be used here, um, to the point that I was converted to the progressive worldview. I recall English and history classes being full of new interpretation, and of course, these were the correct interpretations at long last, that one that in case uh, in one case that turned nearly every literary or historical person into either an oppressor or a queer character or some sort of identity that wasn't obvious until the professor showed us. One professor insisted that Abraham Lincoln, King David from the Bible, Jesus, Billy Budd, and Queequeg, the harpooner in Moby Dick, were all gay, and we spent considerable time on that topic in whatever book we read, despite it having little or nothing to do with the class I thought I'd signed up for. Now, how, how did we know their sexual preference? Well, the evidence was right there in the text, she would always tell us. These folks all had close friendships with other men, ergo, they were gay. So friendship between men, we learned, always implies some form of sodomy is happening. Um, this was the secret knowledge, the Gnostic gospel of my professor. And we just weren't seeing what was being told to us between the lines. But with her magic reading goggles, we would be set free from the shackles of the Western canon and sexual oppression. So this professor and other professors gently nudged me toward ideas that undermined the worldview I thought I held upon entering the university. And there was critical theory and queer theory. They were the latest things. So those worldviews were being evangelized to us students with, I would say, nearly the same vigor as St. Paul when he was in Ephesus. And as a paying student, I provided a captive, captive audience to the message. Now, as I was receiving this instruction and the evidence was prevent, presented for these interpretation, um, I recalled that a quote from Nietzsche the German philosopher, where he mocked Christian apologists and theologians who found uh, any stick of wood or twig in the Old Testament as being in a reference to the cross. So this goes to Christian typology. If there was wood um, in the Old Testament, they would say this is, relates to the cross of Christ. Um, this also reminded me of Sigmund Freud with his obsession of seeing sexual references in every possible shape, reading everything kind of like a 10-year-old boy. Um, everything has to do with sex, of course, uh, with, with Freud. So with Nietzsche, um, yes, <laughs> with Nietzsche himself, he was constantly finding his own thought as evidence of his own genius, and his last published book was called Why I Am So Wise. So... Anyway, um, this is, I'm going to talk a little about when you're, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And it's not just um, my professor who I'm talking about. Um, Christian apologists do this. Freud, Nietzsche, psychology, biology, anything. Um, so while I was taking these classes and receiving the transmissions of, of this modern doctrine or dogma, I began to realize that the close readings of texts were as strange and stretched as anything a Christian interpreter ever came up with. 
my professor was so outlandish in these interpretations. It was you have to start scratching your head and being like, okay, um, if the Christians were seeing the cross in every stick of wood in the Old Testament, then the modern theorists at the university were doing the same for sex and oppression. The problem is that there definitely are signals and references that exist, but taken to the extreme, they fall into what I would call a scandalous level of absurdity that undermines your whole argument. For my instructor, that was looking for sexual oppression in literature because any friendship, any handshake, any nod or look or glance, any wink became undeniable evidence of a character's secret sexual life. The idea of friendship disappeared entirely as there was only one type of love, and that was the kind where people must sleep with one another. There was not the separation of types of love. There's a famous book by C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves, um, which anyone in the real world actually understands if you leave the university or you get out of the bubble of, of uh, college classes, particularly in the English department. There's physical love, eros, which everyone's fixated on. Then there's friendship, philos. Um, there's the highest kind of love, which is the sacrificial, unconditional love, agape. Um, and so there's, there's definitely different kinds of friendship, different kinds of interaction. They don't all have to do with eros. Um, the obsession with sex and oppression, which is another conversation, it came off like a brain fever for two of my professors because they could not speak for long without beginning to sound just like a, a wildly overreaching Christian apologist who grasped to link any wood object in the Old Testament to the cross. And the further the obsession became clear, the more thin the argument became. The linkages began to look like a crazy person's conspiracy wall, where every bit of art, literature, and history was connected by red yarn with thumbtacks on the board um, to prove that Western civilization was just some huge grand scheme to oppress sexual freedom. Uh, instead, what I became convinced of is that the modern dogma of the university is all one huge ongoing protest to deny that sexual sin exists at all and really to reject God entirely. The professors were doing exactly what every individual or group has done who doesn't like the existing rules against sin. They break the rule and form a new group that allows and argues for the sin. Um, and people really, really, really hate the Catholic Church because it consistently sticks to a well-defined list of sins and it doesn't budge on it. Thus, they see the church as just a set of rules that is hateful, but the church doesn't hate anyone. It, they just won't affirm your sin, whether it's getting drunk or, or uh, stealing or gambling or being greedy. Um, that's actually one of the main jobs of the church is to speak truth in love and not affirm sins. So charity, uh, faith, hope, and charity are the theological virtues, and being loving in charity means not uh, affirming someone's sin and that gets the church in a lot of hot water with modern culture now 500 years ago these protests against the rules came out in very different ways than they do today and it's so it's really nothing new but 500 years ago the protesters um, formed new denominations called protestants of course where our brothers in faith splintered into many groups that tweaked the rules to fit their desires for control and to allow some sins to be vindicated. But today, academics go to great lengths to go deeper to find that sin itself does not exist at all and that what we call sin is actually a feature of our DNA or our um, 
our upbringing. A tendency toward alcoholism or same-sex attraction are seen as genetic outcomes. But even if that's true, even if that is true, the choice to drink to drunkenness or to have sex outside of marriage between a man and woman is still a choice. These are still actions beyond the temptation. We all have our cross to bear. I believe we all are given crosses to bear um, for the purpose of coming through them um, from my own experience, which is what a lot of the first 20 episodes of this whole uh, site is about. Um, what we are tempted by does not require follow through in performance. That's the key thing. Um, the temptations exist. We don't have to carry out the sin. We really want to deny something is a sin because we like the sin, or we think we do. And we go to great lengths to find cheerleaders that will confirm our desire. In fact, a lot of our the work we do is finding cheerleaders to confirm what we want to do, especially when it's not the right thing. Interestingly, the sins that we want to deny, those related to alcohol or sex or drugs, we, we can pin to DNA, but no one does this for racism, which is also a sin. There is a sense that we can deny sin that doesn't harm anyone but myself, but that's the problem. Sin always harms other people. Even if the action happens alone or with other another consenting person, it harms people. There is no other result of sin but harm to oneself and to others, which is why Jesus in all of sacred scripture prohibits these actions we call sins. Chapter 7 of Mark's Gospel has a nice short list that will save a lot of time since people like to argue over what Jesus accepted and what he prohibited. And he lists 13 things. Here they are. Drunkenness, licentiousness and folly, maybe another way to say drunkenness. Um, then he says sex outside marriage, which he's obviously referring to marriage uh, between a man and a woman. So adultery and unchastity. He also says, he says, racism is is a sin because evil thoughts and malice and deceit and arrogance he covers them um, it's all very simple really jesus says here's the list don't do these in fact um, the first two things he mentions are evil thoughts and unchastity that's the very first two which apply directly to racism and sex so cheer up there's a little something in mark 7 for for both of our American political parties and foes to soak up, because they're both wrong. Uh, every human being is guilty of one or more of these 13 things. The only person who's not guilty and never has been is Jesus. The greatest sin of all is to forget this, and pride is the gateway to sin, since it infects the heart, and the heart is where all the rest of these 13 things take root. So here's Mark chapter 7, verses 18 to 23. Um, from within people, from their hearts, come evil thoughts, unchastity, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, licentiousness, envy, blasphemy, arrogance, and folly. Okay, so that's a nice list. Um, but I have not come this far to merely complain about these professors or excessive allegory in Christian thought. Um, I get what is happening um, in, in the universities, um, what I'm doing here, we're all arguing for our favored worldview and trying to recruit others to our side. And we, we want to win. I mean, Twitter is just like a pit of death of people who are trying to win for their worldview and they want to feel righteous and no one wants to be wrong. 
um, this is all expected because this is what we like to do. Um, this is not new. People like to argue. Sometimes it's actually it's actually a healthier sign to see arguing than to see like what happened in the Soviet Union where people were just signing things um, so they wouldn't be lose their job or get killed. And that's starting to happen here. Um, there's there's a lot of that happening here with jobs. There's speech codes and all this. Um, so this is this is the, it's the argument is actually a healthy healthy thing to have in a society. Uh, my point though is not to mock say German philosophers or my critical theory professor or Christian apologists that go overboard. The whole game is really to argue your case. So like sports teams argue through strategy and tactics to win games, so do intellectuals with words or or people who are sales it's a kind of sales um this is why so much ink is spilled in making the case for each side now we require reason to make our arguments and ideally the argument aligns with our experience and feelings but this doesn't always happen and this is why people switch sides as the phases of life unfold say the rebellious teenager um can will become a gentle grandparent at some point that's kind of the the flow of life uh generally um, even in our own lives, the, the lion lays down with the lamb, but it may take about 80 years to find a comfortable place for those two to settle. Uh, life experience and age carry great weight in determining what we believe is true. And in each phase of life, we consider our experience to be the right one, the truth, the accurate assessment. Based on our experiences, we can use reason to determine what is true and what is good and what is beautiful, of course. But there's a problem in relying solely on pure reason. The problem is that pure reason ignores that a spiritual side exists at all. As soon as we do this, as soon as we cut off the spiritual side, we can, we can reason that sin doesn't exist. We can reason it right out of the picture um, as, if it was, as if we were using whiteout, uh, the, the liquid you put on paper. People probably don't use that much anymore. But just like using whiteout on paper, it doesn't remove the ink or pencil mark beneath it. It's only covered up. Um, it's still there underneath. It actually looks terrible if you've ever used whiteout. We know it's still there. And the paper underneath, is, or it's just kind of sullied beyond repair. It's messy. And really, unless some supernatural favor can clean it up, the, the paper is kind of ruined. So reason can argue and twist anything into what we want it to be. In fact, um, for Martin Luther, he recognized that sin was still there with us. And like the whiteout metaphor, he said that Jesus's redemption made us like a, quote, dunghill covered in snow. So he reasoned that we were we were still really a piece of crap, but we had some whiteout on us. Um, and he, he also pretty much tossed out free will. And whatever he didn't toss out, John Calvin heaved out the window shortly thereafter. And both of these men were trained as lawyers. And you can see how their, quote, faith alone argument stemmed very much from an underlining line of reasoning, of heavy reason, that laid the pavement for the truck of unbelief and bad interpretations of scripture that has rammed its way through Christendom for the past 500 years. Today, we have everyone arguing, oddly enough, for reason alone, like faith alone was Luther and Calvin's thing. Now we pretty much have reason alone, but this devolves quickly into a pursuit of of power um, because unless you are using reason like Socrates and pursuing the truth, then your subjective bias creeps in quickly and you're arguing more like the sophists against Socrates. Thus in my university classes, the 
reasoned arguments of my critical theory professor, the great evangelist of um, people like Michel Foucault and whatnot, um, she was unmoored from objectivity entirely so that every character with a friend in every book could be sniffed out and spoken of solely in terms of sexual identity. With reason alone or faith alone, when you are a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And this is the problem with ideology in general, and Catholicism is the antidote and the counterculture that cures this hammer nail problem. Reason alone assumes certainty can be had in everything, while living with faith and reason allows for the mystery and nuance, um, which is exactly what makes life with this body and soul interesting. If we only use argument to test our world, uh, we cannot have a full game of life because there is more to our body and soul than reason alone. There is a spiritual life. Uh, it's like playing tennis against a wall instead of against a real person. Eventually it becomes super boring because there are no surprises. The wall never misses. The ball volleys back at the exact angle you would expect it to. Um, it's a game. It's a game of Pong, the old video game, forever. Like reason alone is like playing Pong against a wall. Um, there's no spirit or life in the game. Also, you can never beat the wall because it cannot fail to return the ball. You can never finish and shake hands with your opponent. But when the spirit enters your life, you can play a full game. Like when you play against another person, it's completely different. It's great. Um, like Jacob, you can wrestle with God, but you can't wrestle with him unless you first admit he's there. Wrestling with yourself, with reason alone, is even worse than playing tennis against the wall. In, in the end, to my surprise, the root problem that I was trying to solve for myself wasn't an intellectual problem at all. It wasn't reason alone. There was a larger problem to solve. The problem I was trying to solve was, solve was spiritual, not material not even by itself argument. It was not a mind problem. It was a soul problem. The soul surpasses the mind. And for non-believers, soul and mind may seem like the same thing, but the soul transcends the mind. And collapsing the mind and the soul into one thing kills the spiritual life. If you think of mind and soul as one and the same, then I believe you've walled body away from soul. You have placed the mind solely on the body in the material world, but the mind doesn't belong only with the body, nor does the soul disappear just because you built a wall around yourself. Um, souls obviously can pass through walls. So if you must wall off the concept of mind, I think it's better to place it with the soul rather than the body, since the mind is where prayer happens and the heart. Um, if the mind can only serve the body, then your thoughts can never leave the ground and you will be stuck with the pursuits that end in what I always call the big empty. And the big empty needs four things and they come in many forms, wealth, pleasure, power, and honor, and none of them fill the big empty. So same thing is if there is only mother earth here, if there's no heaven, um, then nature with all its beauty is also the same nature that is red in tooth and claw. So there is only competition. There's not something beyond this life. And I know there's something beyond this life. And it's made my life here so much greater to just be aware of that. Um, better yet, I would say, tear down the wall and admit that the soul exists and embrace the mind as the 
kind of intermediary, like your heart and mind. Um, the mind links body into the soul. Um, the denial of an immortal soul puts a real limit on your life, and a soulless mind makes the body a robot. And I don't want to be a robot. I think some people do now today, which is weird. But the connection to God is in the soul. Um, a mind that doubts the soul must invent meaning. Then come the strange gods, because they must. You'll find strange gods if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in your soul, if you don't believe in sin, if you don't believe in um, the devil. The gaping hole where the soul sits invites the odd gods to move in and take up space. And they make themselves at home. And eventually they will evict you if you don't evict them first. So we can pretend the soul isn't in the room, but the elephant is still there. No matter how many blankets or tarps we use in trying to cover the elephant, it remains. And also the elephant is too large to remove from the room, so it's there to stay. And you may evict the unwanted housemates in your, um, in your mind, but the soul is staying with you no matter what. The mind makes arguments, it requires arguments as food for thought, but argument does not give life. Argument brings strife, not peace. As I said, I think it's good that there is argument over, you know, God, the existence of God, is Christianity true? Um, that mean, that shows a healthy society. As soon as one side says, you can't ask those questions, you can't say certain things are sins, um, you have to adopt a certain party line, now you have a dangerous situation. And we are, we're, we're truly moving toward that. I think everybody can feel it. People talk about it all the time. But um, argument, it does bring strife if you're doing it just for the sake of argument, and it won't bring you peace. So that's a, there's a flip side where um, there's too much of it as well. There's time to just kneel and pray and um, rest in the mysteries. This is why the rosary is so outstanding to do every day. You rest in the mysteries, the five mysteries of each day of the rosary. Um, so now if, if, you, if you're living by reason alone, however, to have peace, you need certainty. You, you will want certainty. You won't want those mysteries. Um, to have life in you, the mind needs joy. And knowing that there is eternal life can bring that joy. Knowing there's the forgiveness of sins. The certainty and joy, um, it comes through the spirit, not from argument, not from reason. The spirit is what animates and gives our body life. Um, we think we need all the answers, but accepting that there is mystery beyond our knowledge can settle an unsettled mind. In the end, um, it wasn't an argument that won me over, just like it wasn't an argument that convinced the illiterate masses of people who followed Jesus before the Gospels were even written. And it also converted very uh, educated people, as it still does today. Um, so yes, the story of Jesus provides an argument, but it is more than merely an argument. As any doubting middle school child knows, or college student, there are, there are flaws or difficulties in the argument. Um, the resurrection stories alone sow doubt with the inconsistencies and contradictions. So clearly the argument of Jesus' story alone is not the only force in play when you see people's lives changed completely by his teaching, his life, or who he is, what he is. Um, <clears throat> something beyond argument changed the early Christians. Something beyond explanation changes people today when they come to know him. There was no book or argument that clinched the deal for the converted. Um, there were no books at all to begin with. There was just 11 apostles and the women, uh, Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the other women. There was 
there was the story that people were sharing that they heard of the victory of Jesus over death. But even that alone was not enough. We know that the story alone is not enough because scholars who study for a lifetime struggle to reconcile the story of Jesus with the evidence because they're looking at it from a reason alone, purely material way. So doubt over the resurrection and Jesus's life in general makes writers and preachers talk about Jesus as much now as they did in the first century over those things. But we can see that it changes people's lives and it completely changes um, entire nations when they convert, um, when they believe, and it and they change in a very different way when they stop believing. Um, <clears throat> yet a person who cannot read at all, at all, can completely understand Jesus. And this is the difference between a lot of these kind of secretive ideas of like my professor, where here's the real world, here's the secret world. If you just read between the lines, you don't need to be able to read at all to understand Jesus. That's the beauty of um, of Christian of, of Catholicism. It's not for special people. You don't need a, a degree in theology. You don't need to be able to read. You don't even need all your five senses to to understand Jesus and understand the soul and the connection to God in heaven. Um, people make radical life changes as they are impacted so profoundly. Um, it was clearly more than an argument that reached the first believers all the way up to today. Um, a poor person or a rich person can be equally affected. People from different nations and backgrounds can kneel beside one another as brothers and sisters in Christ in complete unity on the basic facts laid out in the Apostles' Creed. The, the contradictions in the resurrection stories do not bother them one bit to the great irritation of, of people who don't believe. So how is this possible? Well, the reason why is a, a touch of the Spirit goes beyond reason. Faith edges out reason. Something reaches down and turns the heart, sets it on fire. This It cannot be explained except by the supernatural. And I realize this may sound like a UFO conspiracy theorist's uh, idea who says, uh, well, when in doubt, it must be aliens. But this is bigger than aliens. Um, aliens would also be a creation in the universe. God is outside of that. Jesus is God incarnate. Um, the Holy Spirit is something we can't fully understand. The Trinity we can't fully understand. And that's that's what makes it outstanding, actually. Um, yeah, the truth is that aliens would also be creatures of this universe, meaning they were created like us. Um, God is bigger than any created creature, and he's far more strange as well. Um, he's the creator. Um, it's. I think I wish really wish people would kind of understand how big God is. Like when you look at pictures of the James, what was James Webb telescope or something, you have to realize how enormous how you can't even fathom how big god is um it's uh, it's great the difference between unbelievers and believers is where reason is placed in the order of things um, for many people today reason is placed over faith it exceeds faith and if reason is the highest goods highest good then the world of spirits dies and reason because reason alone cannot tolerate mysteries and i actually think this is where luther and calvin when they got rid of free will i think it was a enormous mistake i mean in in so many ways but um that'll save that for another time for those who place faith higher than reason there are mysteries and they are glorious mysteries the odd thing about placing faith higher than reason is this when we live purely in reason we want certainty and we think anything beyond that is hocus pocus but when we live in faith we get certainty and all the things we can know, but we can also keep our reason. We can keep reason. 
We can have certainty and all that, but we can also have faith. Um, you can have a miracle when you have faith. If you are, you close the door on anything but the material and you can never, ever allow a miracle to ever happen, ever. Um, the Christian biologist, if you're a biologist and a Christian, you can believe in the certainty of the resurrection while exploring the depths of the physical world. Um, the Christian astronomer or an astronomer who's a Christian can believe in an immortal soul while studying the pillars of creation in the night sky. Now, the atheist biology or atheist, uh, bi atheist biologist or, or an atheist astronomer must find all the answers for everything in these cells, in the atoms, in the universe. Um, and for the believer, reason is still maintained, but it submits to faith. So something strange happened when I came to understand this hierarchy or this structure. Um, I realized that there are different types of knowing. Um, those who have little worldly wisdom or factual knowledge can hear the name Jesus Christ and come to understand that he is God. While the wisest and wealthiest people cannot understand, uh, it's the same as, as in Jesus' time when he was scolding the rich or the Sadducees or the Pharisees saying, and then he would have the woman at the well or Peter or Mary Magdalene see God um, or the, the Roman centurion, uh, people that, that see it, they see it because they have great faith. And where the light of Christ shines, this problem is solved. Um, this awakening changes lives to the point that all prior experience becomes illuminated in a new way. And all of the problems are solved through, the, through, the, through life and, and the cross, carrying your cross. Uh, this world of chaos and order, of suffering, of pain, of joy, of peace, all suddenly makes sense. Um, literally, the puzzle is solved. All right, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, we'll be back with a few more in this series. I'm going to wrap this series up soon, but thank you for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.